Philippians. We're going to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. 27 through 30. And I will be reading from the NIV. Chapter, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and it's a very important word as it sets the stage for the rest of the book of Philippians. And we just ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit uh, would speak to us through your word, that you would um, preach a better sermon than I have written, and that what is right and true would be remembered and applied, and whatever I may have gotten wrong would be forgotten. And we just pray, Father, that you would be glorified through this uh, time as we consider your word. In Christ's name, amen. In 1863, Edward Everett Hale, who was from Boston, in fact, his statue is in the Boston Garden, published in the Atlantic a short story entitled A Man Without a Country. In the story, the protagonist is a young United States Army Lieutenant, Philip Nolan who develops a friendship with Aaron Burr. When Burr is tried for treason, which did occur in 1807, and in fact, because of Burr's connection in this story with, this, with Nolan, some people thought a man without a country was a true story. But anyway, when Burr, when, um, Burr is tried for treason, Nolan is tried as an accomplice. And during his testimony, he bitterly renounces his nation, angrily shouting, I wish I may never hear of the United States again. The judge is completely shocked at this announcement and on convicting him, icily grants him his wish. Nolan is to spend the rest of his life aboard United States Navy warships in exile with no right ever again to set foot on US soil and with explicit orders that no one shall ever mention his country to him again. The sentence is carried out to the letter. And for the rest of his life, Nolan is transported from ship to ship, living out his life as a prisoner on the high seas, never once allowed to go back to a home port. Though he is treated according to his former rank, nothing of his country is ever mentioned to him. None of the sailors in whose custody Nolan remains are allowed to speak to him about the United States. His newspapers are censored. Nolan is unrepentant at first, but over the years becomes sadder, wiser, and desperate for news. 
One day, as he's being transferred to another ship, he beseeches a young sailor never to make the same mistake that he had. He says, remember, boy, that behind all these men, behind officers and government, and people even, there is the country herself, your country, and that you belong to her as you belong to your own mother. Stand by her, boy, as you would stand by your mother. Deprived of a homeland, Nolan slowly and painfully learns the true worth of his country. He misses it more than his friends or family, more than art or music or love or nature. Without it, he is nothing. Dying aboard the USS Levant, he shows his cabin to an officer named Danforth. It is a little shrine of patriotism. The stars and stripes are draped around the picture of George Washington. And over his bed, Nolan has painted a bald eagle with lightning blazing from its beak and claws grasping the globe. At the foot of his bed is an outdated map of the United States showing many of its old territories that had, unbeknownst to him, been admitted to statehood. Nolan smiles and says to Danforth, here you see, I have a country. Hale wrote this story in order to bolster support for the Union during the Civil War. But what is striking to me about the story is not the patriotic fervor that it was to instill in the readers, but the fact that Nolan had trivialized the importance of his country only to learn later when it was too late how important it was. Like the ships that he lived on for the rest of his life, he floated here and there, having no home in which to return. Well, during the time of the Apostle Paul, citizenship was especially important. The Philippians were conscious of their privileged privilege status as a Roman colony. One of only five cities in Macedonia granted the right to be governed by Roman law and to be exempt from direct taxation. The Christians in Philippi would have stood out in this society. They were not willing to participate in the popular cult of the Roman emperor, and nor were they willing to conduct the traditional funerary rites at the graves of their ancestors. These things would not have endeared them to the Roman officials or to unbelieving family members, or for that matter, even to their neighbors. Their non-participation would have been unsettling to the relative stability of Philippi, and they would have been viewed as bad citizens, a cause of shame for both city and family. Well, citizenship was also important to Paul. And in fact, throughout the book of Philippians, the apostle lays out what citizenship for the Christian looks like beginning here in our text. Of course, the citizenship he speaks of is rooted not in Rome, but in the kingdom of God. And Paul says in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. For the last three weeks, we've been talking about the eternal perspective that Paul has and that we too as disciples of Christ should have as we live our life. 
and in Paul's case specifically, as he faced all sorts of trials. He knows that God is working in these trials and urges the Philippian church to understand this as well. As you know, as Christians, our identity is rooted in Christ, a point that Paul will soon make out in chapter 2. Having our identity rooted in Christ means that in Christ alone we find our purpose for life and our hope. We also understand that we are not in this life alone, but out of the wisdom of God, he has established his church and made us into one body. And this is why unity within the church is so important. If the body does not work in concert with one another, then it becomes ill. And with its health diminishing, so is its effectiveness in bringing glory to God. And this is why Paul addresses the issue of unity throughout the book, also beginning in our text this morning. As we come to our passage, <clears throat> Paul moves directly <clears throat> from the future, a possible visit, to the present situation in Philippi, which has the potential for regression as opposed to progression in the faith. Our passage is interesting in that in the Greek text, it is one long and complicated sentence. Now we know that the apostle Paul was the king of Ronan sentences, but as in other places, it's almost as if he, as if he cannot contain himself as new concerns come bubbling out, as God is inspiring him to write the word, these things just come flowing out with great urgency that he wishes to share to his audiences. Our passage holds the keys to much of Paul's letter, especially regarding Paul's concern about things in Philippi, which have undoubtedly been reported to him by Epaphrodites. Although he does not explicitly say so, he implies that there are some internal tensions among them. We see, we see allusions to this specifically in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where Paul pleads with Iodia and Syntyche, as well as in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, as well as verse 14. At the same time, there are also external pressures being applied to the church, which makes their situation in Philippi, Philippi tenuous. Paul's ultimate concern for them is directly related to his concern for the gospel in that city. His hope, as in two, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 make plain, is that in their lifelong friendship, in their long-term friendship, as well as their participation together in the gospel, that that will pull them through this crisis. He begins in verse 27 by urging them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The NIV's translation of the verse does not does convey the point that Paul is making, but it loses something in translation. The word translated as conduct actually means to live as a free citizen or to be a citizen. Paul's making a play on their dual citizenship of the empire by virtue of them being Philippians and of heaven by virtue of their faith in Christ and being made a part of the believing community. On the one hand, Philippi boasted of its privileged status as a Roman colony and therefore had Roman citizenship conferred upon them in a manner, a matter in which the city took particular pride. On the other hand, by joining it with the adverb worthily, Paul now uses the verb metaphorically, not meaning to live as citizens of Rome, 
but to live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. And then this is the exact contrast that he makes in chapter 3, 17 through 20, where our citizenship in heaven is contrasted to those whose minds are set on earthly or earthly things. So the point is, just as Philippi was a colony of Rome and Macedonia, so the church was a colony of heaven in Philippi. And so is Lanesville Congregational Church, a colony of heaven in Gloucester, Massachusetts. I wonder if we realize how much a gift the church of Jesus Christ is to us as Christians. It does seem that we have a tendency to trivialize it. Gathering with the brethren has become sometimes somewhat optional. Does that mean that we see heaven in the same way? I don't think so. So why do we see the church differently? The other point I wish to make about this is when Paul says live as citizens, heaven being implied, he does so in the imperative mood. We are in Christ living as citizens of heaven is not an option, but a mandate. This call to live as citizens of heaven sets the stage for what follows all the way through to chapter 2, verse 18. As citizens of heaven, then, we are to live, a man, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And this is a point Paul makes in a number of places in the New Testament, in Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. Christianity is a way of living, not just a way of thinking or believing. The gospel is the means by which our whole way of living changes. We are called to live a life consistent with God's revealed word. And we are called to discharge our duties as servants of Christ and citizens of the kingdom while we live on earth. When Paul speaks of living in a worthy way, he is saying that we are to live in such a way that shows that what we believe is of supreme value. We live in such a way that Jesus is seen as glorious and honored. And we live so that those who witness our lives see to live is Christ. This is what's being conveyed in the children's song, This Little Light of Mine. You know the line that says, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. We live so that those who see, uh, we live so those who know see to live is Christ. What follows are three aspects of heavenly citizenships that Paul <coughs> hopes to hear about in the lives of the Christians in Philippi. The first is that they're standing firm in one spirit. The second is that they are contending together as one man for the faith of the gospel. And third, that in so doing, they are not themselves intimidated or frightened in any way by the opposition that is responsible for their present suffering. Let's look at the first point, standing firm in one spirit. As I said, this is a complicated passage, and it's possible to regard spirit as a reference to the Holy Spirit, but the explanatory phrase that follows, as one man, literally as one soul, strongly suggests that both are descriptions of Christian unity of thought and action, similar to the expression that we find in Acts 4.32, which reads, all believers were one in heart and mind. Of course, true unity must be produced by the Holy Spirit. However, the source is not what is stressed here, but the result. 
Second, because they are of one spirit, they are to contend together as one man for the faith of the gospel. To contend comes from the Greek word that means to engage in an athletic contest. The word here in this form means to contend side by side, in essence, as one man. This is not an individual struggle, but one that is fought together. And Paul will develop this theme in chapter two and return to it several times throughout the the letter. The point is very clear. We need the body of Christ. Our struggles as heavenly citizens must be faced within the fellowship of believers. And this is why unity is so such an important theme in Paul's epistles. It's everywhere. The tendency for the church is to fragment. We get our noses bent out of joint. Instead of working through the problem, we leave in a huff. When confronted with sin, instead of acknowledging our sin and being grateful that someone would love us so much to confront us, we reply with, who are you to judge me? We are in this together. And while we may not always do a good job caring for one another, God has called his church to be one. Therefore, we need to work together as one body. Now, during my senior year in high school, I played on a great football team. We were undefeated and we were ranked high among high schools across the nation. We had a number of excellent athletes that received scholarships to big colleges, but what made the team great was not our individual skill, but our ability to work together and encourage one another. Our coach, Benny Pierce, who was a Christian, set the tone for that team, and we gladly followed. During my freshman year in college, I was on a terrible football team. We won only one game all year. We too were made up of many fine athletes, but there was no cohesion. Each man was in it for himself. Players would actually get into shouting matches with the coach, who by the way, did not set a good tone for the team about their amount of playing time. It was a miserable experience. My experience on these two teams highlights the importance of unity. If we don't work as one person, we're going to fall. And why? The evil one is on the prowl. The attacks can come from multiple directions as Satan looks for the chink in our armor and makes his attack at our weakest point. And I think for us who live in a country where we have freedom to worship, this is how he especially gets at us. But standing side by side as one man covers up those weak spots so that that even if one of us may stumble, Somebody is immediately there to hold us up. And this is why the church is so important and cannot be seen as optional. And finally, that in so doing, they are not themselves frightened in any way by the opposition they're facing. And that is responsible for their present suffering. We can suspect that much of this has to do with the fact that they, as citizens of heaven, stuck out like sore thumbs among the Philippian population especially as they are contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. They must have had to endure great pressure to conform to the culture. And conforming to the culture, of course, is nothing new. I think it's the greatest challenge that the church faces today, especially here in the United States. The temptation is to acquiesce here and there, and in so doing, make ourselves seem less offensive. But then are we not weakening the message of the gospel? 
Are we not then sliding our Lord? The greatest way we can have an effect on our culture is by being true to who we are as Christians. Paul implies this in the latter part of verse 28 when he says, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. And what Paul is getting at here, that they will see the contrast that exists because in the face of of terrible treatment, they are rising above it and loving their enemies as Christ loved his enemies. Failure of the church to be frightened by enemies was a token of the ultimate failure of the enemies of God. The adversaries may not have recognized this, but it was nonetheless a sign that their attacks were futile and the church would prevail. As Martin Luther wrote in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. The courage that believers have to stand firm against the foe comes from God alone and demonstrates the salvation that they've received through Christ Jesus. And then in verses 29 and 30, Paul says a very interesting thing. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Commentator Moises Silva has written a paraphrase that I'd like to read to you that suggests the relationship between these two verses. He writes, the conflicts that you are experiencing may appear frightening and thus threaten to discourage you, but you cannot allow this to happen. Perhaps you're tempted to interpret these conflicts as a bad sign, as though God is displeased with you and intends to destroy you. But that's exactly wrong. You must interpret what is happening as evidence of God's design to save you. Why? Because suffering is the way to glory, God's gift of salvation for his children. Paul's description of suffering as a gift is startling. We find it difficult enough to accept the inevitability of suffering, and we feel we are making spiritual progress if we resign ourselves to the fact that grief cannot be avoided. But here Paul challenges the Philippians' theology and asks them to understand their afflictions not merely as the inevitable, but as a manifestation of God's gracious dealings with them. While Paul's statement does does have a startling effect, this theme appears consistently through the scriptures, and particularly in Paul's letters. According to Luke in Acts chapter 14, Paul told believers in Asia Minor that trials are necessary if we are to enter the kingdom of God. To the Romans, he presents suffering as a condition of glorification and therefore as part of that which God works out for their good. When Paul in Philippians 1.29 sets up affliction as a correlative of faith, a necessity of, and a gift, he is given vivid expression to an underlying biblical theme, a fundamental truth of Christian citizenship. In chapters 2, 5 through 11, a passage that we know very well, Paul appeals to the church to follow the example of Jesus. We're called to live on behalf of Christ in the same way that Christ lived and died, on behalf of this fallen, broken world. Christ did this by taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
And this is why Paul can explain that their salvation includes suffering on behalf of Christ. Since those that oppose the Philippian church are in kind, are in kind like those who oppose Jesus and crucified him. One of the things that has struck me and I've thought about greatly is something that David Horn said to us on our men's retreat last year. When he was in China, he takes groups from Gordon Conwell as part of a cohort to China and they meet with the Chinese Christians there. Well, over the last few years, persecution has really increased in China. For a while, there was a lessening of it, but it has really increased. And when asked how they are enduring that persecution, uh, they don't really speak about it, but they speak about their greatest concern being the Christians in North Korea. They're, they're so focused on the needs in North Korea that they don't see their needs as being that great. And these are people that are facing persecution in a way that we are not. So an important question arises from this as to whether or not physical persecutions or afflictions suffered as a direct result of, Christ, of the Christian's identity with Christ are the only experiences that qualify as sufferings for Christ. This passage or the New Testament more generally gives no, gives no explicit and unequivocal answer to the question. It would seem that for the person whose life is committed in its totality to the service of our Lord, every affliction and every frustration becomes an obstacle to fulfilling the goal of serving Christ. It would be difficult to think that Christians who enjoy, at least for the present, the freedom of religion, as we do, and so suffer no physical persecution or religious discrimination are thereby deprived an essential element of sanctification. Other passages from the New Testament give evidence to this point. For instance, in James 1, consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Also in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Both James and Peter talk about all kinds of trials, with all of them being used by God for our sanctification. That being said, we need to be well aware that while we may not be attacked directly by the evil one through persecution, he knows how to attack in subtle ways that unless we are on guard, we can be taken by surprise. Finally, in verse 30, Paul reinforces these words on suffering by calling attention to the similarity between this church's the church in Philippi's experience and his own conflicts. Already in verse seven, Paul had described the Philippians as co-participants with him in the ministry and suffering, though the reference there is primarily in regard to their support of Paul's ministry. Here, on the other hand, he is linking his own struggle and past struggles with their trials. In other words, they are in this together with Paul. Paul earlier used himself as an example for the Philippians and now in essence is telling them to carry on as he is carrying on. 
The Philippians had seen firsthand Paul's suffering when he had been in Philippi. In Acts 16, we see the story of Paul in the name of Christ as he calls out an evil spirit from a slave girl who could supposedly tell the future. Her owner is furious because he can no longer make money off of the girl. He's furious with Paul and Silas and brought up charges against them, which led them before the magistrate. And they were stripped, beaten, flogged, and thrown into prison. And of course, we know the rest of the story, how despite of an earthquake, Paul and Silas remained in jail, and the Philippian jailer and his entire family came to faith in Christ. So the Philippian church would know very clearly this story. So the Christians in Philippi were also aware of what had happened to Paul in Rome. So they knew exactly what he was talking about. Well, when I began the sermon, I told you the story of the man without a country and the painful lesson he learned of the importance of citizenship. Paul throughout this passage, and for that matter, throughout this letter, strongly emphasizes that our citizenship is in heaven. And this citizenship is something not to be taken lightly or trivialized. Our citizenship defines who we are, where our hope lies, as well as our mission as citizens of the kingdom of God. As co-citizens, Paul calls us to be united as one man as we stand together in the fight against the evil one, no matter what that fight may look like. By standing side by side, a united front, we find great encouragement for one another as we continue to persevere together in the fight. The final thing that Paul stresses in all of this is it is done for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our tendency is to focus on suffering. It's hard not to. But what Paul is urging us to to do together is to focus on Christ and his example for us. Through death on the cross, Jesus not only saved us, but modeled for us God's way of facing opposition. And that is to love them to death. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the God of our salvation and our eternal hope. We thank you, Father, that you have given us uh, the word of God. We thank you for Jesus and for the example that he has set for us, not only for what he has accomplished for us, which is paramount, but for that example. And as Dan is going to lead us through that next in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that example so clearly. We pray, Father, that as we work our way through this, this text, that you would speak to our hearts. But I pray now especially that, uh, that you would help us to remember what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Yes, we're Americans, but what we are really are citizens of heaven. That's our real home. And while we are here on earth, the church, the church is a, is a piece of that heaven, a colony of heaven here. And if we thank you for the churches throughout Cape Ann and for the colonies that are there and throughout the United States and throughout the world, may you allow that light of Christ to shine brightly in us. And may our intention be to bring glory and honor to you by living as Christ. Help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.